And if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Proverbs, chapter 23, I ordinarily have you stand as we read the Scripture, but the Scripture passage I'm going to begin with today is so short, I hate to do it, so we will just, uh, I'll just read it to you. Proverbs, chapter 23, if you would open your Bible there, and uh, I'll read in just a moment. First, I'd like to show you some pictures. And uh, since we're focusing a little bit on our Christian school today, uh, these are some old advertisements we found. That one is from 6776. Speed reading. Wait, wait a minute, back it up, hold on. Speed reading for four and five year olds. No. <laughs> but we will teach you how to read, is the point of that ad. Okay. Here's, let's go to the next one. This happy couple met at college. It's not a very good picture. It's a happy four- and five-year-old. And uh, let's go to the next one here. This isn't working out real well. <laughs> the greatest thing since, what is that, grandma's. I'm even having trouble with that one. Okay. But it's our kitty college at Florence Christian. Just some old ads that we used to run. And then we had a new teacher that year. Anybody know who that is? <laughs> That's Sue Skelton when she was uh, 16 years old. Y'all don't even know who it was, did you? <laughs> okay, just some old FCS memories that somebody came up with for us today. I would like to read to you one phrase. I hope it is already marked in your Bible. It is something of a motto in my life and, your, and many of yours. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, the first part of the verse. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. How many times have I preached from that verse? And yet it never grows old to me. How many times have I read that and thought, whatever I think I am, just stop, let me stop for a minute, and I want you to absorb that. You are what you think. Think negative, you're negative. Think positive, you're positive. Think can do, you'll probably try to do it. Think can't do, you won't even try. Your thoughts so determine not only your actions, but even the aura around you, even what you project unknowingly in your body language. And that is the basis for me for Christian education in this school or in this church. Don't turn me off. I realize I'm speaking to a large body of people who do not have a child in our Christian school. And I understand that you might say, well, I wish he would speak on something more relevant. There isn't anything more relevant than what I'm talking about. If you don't have a child or a grandchild, you live in a society that is being influenced unmistakably by education, whether it be public, private, or Christian. And you live with those people. And this, a very, very large and significant part of our ministry here for 47 years for 47 years now, has been the Florence Christian School. So I want to turn your thoughts to it today 
because it will apply even if you don't currently have children. There are 15,770 religious schools in America. Over 6,000 of them are Catholic schools. Then there are the evangelical schools, and the Baptists have the largest number of schools other than the Catholics. There are Jewish schools. There are even Islamic schools in America, not very many, I think 142. But education has always been a vital part of the church's work. If you remember in the early days of the country, most of the schools were located in the church house. And in our villages and small towns, they had the one-room school with all the children being taught simultaneously from grade one right on up through high school. And the pastor was usually the preacher on Sunday, but he was the principal of the school on Monday through Friday. It was only in the 1840s and 50s when so-called public education began to be a dominant factor in education. Up until then, all education in America for the more than half of this nation's history, the school was a religious school depending upon the preferences, of course, of the parents. Florence Christian started here in September of 1972. We only had 62 students that year. We had five faculty members. We had, and today, of course, we have 587 students enrolled as of today. And we have over 1,300 graduates, one of whom you heard from today. Florence Christian Schools is fully accredited by SCISA. SCISA stands for South Carolina Independent uh, Schools. And uh, we have the highest accreditation that they offer. You can't get a better high school diploma in South Carolina than the one that you would get from Florence Christian School. Florence Christian has been self-supporting except for the buildings all the way through. Now, we need the buildings anyhow. If we close the school down tomorrow, we would still need almost all those buildings. So it's not that we have just gone out and built buildings for the school. We've built multi-purpose buildings all the way through our experience here. We use our buildings at least six days a week, Monday through Friday, and then again on Sunday for Sunday school and church. And oftentimes, they're used for something even on Saturday. I want to make the point to you, first of all, today, that Florence Christian is a Christian school. It is a Christian school. Say with me, Christian. Christian is our middle name, Florence Christian. It's not Florence Private School. You will never hear me refer to it, I don't think, as a private school. It distresses me when parents say, I came to put my child in private school. We don't have a private school primarily here. We have a Christian school. That's the whole heart of what we're doing. Now, as a ministry of a church like the Florence Baptist Temple, you would then expect the school to have the same beliefs that the church has. You would expect the school to have the same values as the church has. You would expect the school to reflect its sponsoring and governing organization, wouldn't you? And it, it does as much as is possible. It's true that we 
accept students from other churches, even from other cultures. Sometimes we will have a Buddhist student or a student from some completely different religion, and we're glad to welcome them to our school. We don't pound them trying to jam our beliefs down their throat. We never do that. I've cautioned our teachers against that. On the other hand, we are never ashamed of, nor do we hesitate to teach what we believe. That's why we exist. And so we respect their differences, but we are here for our stated purpose. And what is our purpose? Our purpose as a school is we're committed to teaching a biblical worldview during the educational process. We're educating people in all the other disciplines, reading, writing, arithmetic, science, and so on, but inculcated and as a part of every single thing that we do, we're trying to teach that biblical worldview. I didn't help Alan with his testimony. Those were his words. I was thrilled when he put in there, I learned a biblical worldview while I was here, and it equipped me when I went to college and I heard teaching contrary to that worldview. It protected me. He really preached my sermon in essence right there. The vision for our school from day one has been found in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Would you like to turn there in your Bible? Because I, I would like for you to have that marked as well. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, where it speaks of and describes the growing process, the maturing process of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And how does it describe it? It describes it in these words, that Jesus increased in wisdom. Wisdom is what? It comes from knowledge, doesn't it? Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. That means he was growing physically. And in favor with God, that's he was growing spiritually. And in favor with man, he was growing socially. He was maturing as he grew up. So Jesus was growing in four areas. His knowledge and wisdom, his physical body was maturing in favor with God, spiritually he was growing, and in favor with man, socially he was becoming a well-rounded personality, if you will. That's our vision. That's my dream for our school, and it has been from the beginning. That's never really changed. But I tell you today, there are clouds on the horizon. There are storms that are going to come. And all I had to do to decide for sure that I wanted to preach this message was read, read and watch the news this week. And I'm, I know that you're familiar with the story. Karen Prince, uh, Pence, rather, Karen Pence, the wife of the vice president of the United States, they, she was called out and an article was written about her in the New York Times and picked up by all the other blogs and magazines and news counts and newspapers and so on. Karen Pence became a voluntary volunteer art teacher at the uh, Emmanuel Christian School in Springfield, Virginia, a church sponsored by a Bible church, very much like what we would be. And she's a volunteer art teacher. 
And so the New York Times reporter went and looked at what the school stood for and took its statement of beliefs and so on off of its website. And then they wrote her, wrote her up. And here was the bottom line of not the New York Times, but another blog that was put out that's very well known, one of the liberal news uh, sites on the Internet. Here's how, what it said. How could this happen in 2019 that the vice president of the United States wife could actually teach in a school that believes these things? How could a school even exist in 2019 that believes what this school believes? What does this school believe? I even checked its website myself. That could have been said about Florence Christian School. They believe the same thing we do. Specifically, the New York Times article criticized her for being associated with a school that believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. That the school now ought to be pushing an agenda where it's okay for male to marry male, female to marry female, and or if you choose, you can be old fuddy-duddy and marry the opposite sex. The school also takes a position that your gender is determined by your birth. Ah, strange, huh? That uh, you're either born a male or a female. And now if you look on the Internet, what you will see is that there are 30 different gender designations now. One of the leaders of the left this week made the, the, the statement that she apologized that she didn't feel like she understood what it was like to be cisgendered or something. And I, I don't even know what they're speaking foreign language. They're speaking in unknown tongues to me. I don't know what that means. 30 different genders? Well, I just uh, believe what God's Word says. He made them male and female, period. And then the school says that sexual conduct outside of marriage will not be permitted among the faculty or the student body. The vice president answered, quote, what this article is about is the disparagement of Christianity writ large. It's about the utter contempt the media and the radical left have for the remnant of faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I hope they count me into that remnant, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That's what the world thinks about our school today. That's what the culture that's how the culture describes a Christian education. And then I kept watching the news. What a week. I told the staff in our prayer meeting before the service, what a week we've had. The governor of Virginia, a former neurologist, a children's neurologist, he sits there as cool as a cucumber, just as dispassionate as a man can be, and he says, I can tell you exactly what will happen in this circumstance. That baby, if it's born, will be kept comfortable. And then the doctor and the parents will confer and decide if the baby is to live. 
And he made a case for infanticide that we would even now reach a point in America where we would take the life of a baby after the child is born. That's not abortion. That's the murder of an infant. That is called infanticide. And then he just talked about it like it was as common as the sun coming up and reading the newspaper. So when I tell you that there are clouds on the horizon, rapidly, rapidly, and I don't want to just be negative, but I have to tell you what I know to be true as consistent with the Scripture. I read almost weekly now, 51% of the university and college students in America now prefer socialism. It is their preference over our time-honored capitalistic system of economy. What does that say about the future? And very frankly, what does it say about the educational system that produces that kind of thinking? For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So why do we need, then, the Florence Christian School? The school operates over there. I try not to jam it down the throats of people who choose not to go to our school. I don't mean to ever do that. I, I could be, you don't know how critical I could be about the educational trends that I read about that's happening in the public sector. I try not to beat everybody up on that. I try to, I, I, I know that everybody cannot afford to send a child to the, to the Christian school, and oh, I wish to God I could figure out some way that we could finance a whole bunch more children coming there because I want every child that I possibly can to help that child receive a Christian education. I know that all the kids that come to school here don't turn out right as you define right. Some of them have their problems. Some go away and never come back. Some of them renounce the faith. Others of them go away for a while, and like Alan, they come running back. And so they're people. They make choices. But I wish somehow, or I want the church, and I, I, I don't do this often, but I want the church to be proud of our school. I want you to understand that what they're doing over there five days a week from 8 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon in some ways is as consequential as what we do as a congregation. That the Bible is being inculcated, that Christian values are being taught, and they're being taught seven hours a day, five days a week to 587 children. I think that's a pretty big thing. That's a pretty big thing. <clears throat> Why do we need a Christian school? Number one, to counteract the thinking of the secular culture we live in. To counteract, to build a fortress around the minds and hearts of our children, to protect the minds of our children from the secularism that's taken over in America. There was a day you didn't need the Christian school as much as you need it now. I went to a public school most of my life. I, we read the Bible every morning. We said the Lord's Prayer 
We even had preachers come in and preach in chapel services. I was a little tiny boy, and Dr. B.R. Lakin came and held a chapel service at the public school that I attended in West Virginia. What a change when the Word of God and prayer is barred officially from the school system of the country. Have you ever wondered why people act like they do today? Stop and ponder that with me for a moment. Have you ever wondered why people act like they do today? I can tell you it precisely. They act like they do because they think like they do. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. They act like they do because they think like they do. And Proverbs 23, 7 just nails that. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. People act out what they really believe and what they think about anything. The old proverb says, not a biblical proverb, it says, the thought is father to the deed. And the one that I really like is this, sow a thought and reap a deed. Sow a deed and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. May I say it again? Sow a thought, whatever I think about, I do. Reap an act. Sow an act and before long you've reaped a habit. Sow the habit and you reap a character, because our character is the sum total of, of our habits. And then you sow the character, and you reap an eternal destiny. So it all begins with the thought, as a man thinketh, so is he. So you ever wonder what, why people are doing in America what they're doing? They're doing what they do because they think like they think. And what are the factors then that influence the way they think? Well, their friends, obviously, with, particularly with young people, their peer group has tremendous influence on them. However, that varies in how much time they spend with a peer group. And then uh, the culture around them, and today we know, we read, we hear every week of the effects of the social media culture and the internet and the and the video games and the whole digital world that's out there. And then we know that the home should be the most profound influence in a child's life, and in many cases, in good homes, it is. And then we know the influence of the church. We don't have you much. Oh, I wish we had you more. If you come Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Sunday school, you only come about 2% of your time or less. And so we don't have you a whole lot, but boy, that, that 2% can really impact people as you're hearing in the testimonies this month. It makes a difference. But then the school, you know how much the school, the educational, do you know how, how much of the time your child is spent in school? If we get rid of the eight hours a day, we'll give everybody that they sleep. That puts us down to 16 hours of waking time. And the average school day is about seven hours. And so that means seven hours times five is 35 hours a week. 
35 hours a week equals out to 43% of your waking hours, if you're a student, is spent in school. 43, almost half of your time is spent in the school. Who then is going to be the greatest, the greatest shaper of the thinking of children in so many cases? And so when I look at society and I see how people act, the school at least has 43% of the responsibility just with a logical calculation here. You know, the pilgrims came to America. Do you remember why the pilgrims came to America? They came to America because they said, our children are picking up the thinking processes of the culture around us. And it's so bad over there that we're going to leave our homes, our property, our families, everything. We're moving to a new world. We're going to go over there and we're going to hack out a nation over there that where we've never been, we're going to have to start with clearing the ground, the forest, and then ultimately we're going to have to build our homes our churches, our cities, our villages, and we're going to have to educate our children somehow. And they went through that horrendous sacrifice, left everything in order to be able to come and put their children in an environment where their thinking was not being corrupted by the culture around them. Boy, when I think of that, that's how education began in America with a group of people in 16 and 19 up in Plymouth. A group of people who gave up everything they had in order to make sure their children didn't absorb the ways of the world. And this morning, I tell you folks, you can't deny reality. America is reaping the harvest right now of the teaching of secularism and uh, evolution and value-free progressive education for over 60 years. They were teaching it when I was in college. And it's intensified rather than, than diminished. Mark chapter 7 and verse 25 again stays on this idea of the thinking. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts. Where does evil thinking come from? It comes from within, from the heart. Romans 12 and 1, be not conformed to the world, the world's thoughts, the world's language, the world's activities, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is not your brain. Your brain is an organ. It's a pound of fat up in top of your head between your ears. That's not what it's talking about. It didn't say the mind or the, the brain. It said the mind. The mind is the processes of the brain, the thinking patterns of the brain. Don't be conformed to the world. It's language. It's thoughts. It's, it's customs. It's culture. Philippians 2, let this mind, this manner of thinking again, be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We are to think like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about your children or grandchildren, but I know about mine. And I can tell you this about them. They must be, it takes everything that we have 
in the home and the church and the school to be able to try to get them to think in a biblical way. And yet it's still a challenge with all the influences about them today. Here's one I'd like for you to look up because I don't know how many people really have thought about Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Will you look it up, please? Mark it in your Bible. It starts with a warning word, beware. Beware lest any man spoil. That's the word. So many people read that in the King James Bible. They think that it's not talking about spoiling your children by giving them too much. It's not using the word that way. It's an old-fashioned word like the spoils of battle. A king went out and he fought a war and he, he took the spoils of battle, meaning he captured a lot of material things. Now, here's what the verse means. Beware lest any man capture you. Beware lest any man capture you. That's not just for the school children either. By the way, that can be for you and me, can't it? That warning is for Bill Monroe. Beware, Bill, lest you be captured through the philosophy and vain deceit, the tradition of men after the rudiments or basic elements of the world and not after Christ. And in America this morning, ladies and gentlemen, there are tens of thousands of people Millions of people, I fear, who are believers. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They probably, many of them, number in the millions who are saved people, but they have been captured. They're captured. They're out of the battle. They're POWs. Their thinking is like the world, though they say they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a strong warning there. And why do we need a Christian school? We want to, if possible, where it is possible, we want to build a battlement. We want to build a high wall around the minds of people so that we can protect them until they can get to the point that they can fully mature as did the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second reason we have a Christian school is because human nature is what it is. You see, children just like me are fallen people. They have a fallen nature. We don't think that about our children. Early childhood philosophy today in education would never say that about a child. They would say a child's a blank slate when he's born, and, you know, you write on him for good or bad. You write write on the slate. But it's not what the Bible says. In your Bible, Psalm number 51 and verse 5 says, In sin did my mother conceive me. I was born with a sinful nature from conception. Proverbs 22 and 15, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. You don't have to teach them the wrong. They can handle that on their own. (laughs) Proverbs 20 and 11, even a child is known by his doings. Think about that. Doings means his actions, his activities. Even a child is known from early age. You ever watched a baby throw a tantrum? Boy, if you don't think that babies can be violent, go down there and keep preschool. (laughs) You just haven't observed enough babies. I can promise you, I mean, we... 
We have one of ours, I won't say which one, went through this period when they bite everybody. And I mean, I was so embarrassed and humiliated and somebody comes up, my kid has bit a chunk out of their kid, you know? That's not good. Well, did Norma teach him that? No. They pick that up on their own. They can be violent. They can be deceitful. Nothing's wrong, and there's a temper tantrum and screaming and hollering like they're dying. You pick them up, and it stops. Mm. A little deception there on the farm, huh? No, you don't have to teach them that. They act out their fallen nature very, very early in life. They're broken as their dad and mom and pastor are broken. In Proverbs 22 and 6, it says they must be trained. And the earlier you train them, the better. You know what that word trained there means? What's an interesting word. In the old days, the midwives would put a little bit of honey on their little finger. And they'd stick it in the mouth of the little newborn child just minutes after he's born. And they'd rub it on the palate to stimulate the nursing reflex. They wanted the little child to immediately begin to, to nurse his mother. And so they put that honey there and they'd rub the top of his mouth with it to stimulate that nursing reflex. And then later that word train was used in another way. It's like training a rose on the trellis or a vine on a wall. You know, you see people go out and work on their rose bushes, and they, they train them. They take the runners and wind them around and tie them up sometimes until they get the rose or the vine to be in the shape they want it to be in. That's the word train. Take your child and train them, guide them, tweak them as you go along. You work with them like a vine on a wall, like a rose on a trellis, like the little baby, you're encouraging right behavior so that the baby will nurse and be healthy. In the same way, the Christian school is seeking to point the children in the right way. Our children must be trained. Their nature mitigates against that training. There's an old wise saying that says, as the twig is bent, so shall it be, or so shall it grow. As the twig is bent. So the goal of Christian education is to bend the child in the right direction and help them accept the right path. Ella Wheeler Wilcox wrote this. To every man there openeth a highway and a low, and every man decideth the way his soul shall go. One ship sails east and another west. With the selfsame winds they blow. Tis the set of the sail and not the gale that tells the way we go. Like the winds of the sea are the waves of time. As we journey along through life, it's the set of the soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. And at Florence Christian School, a significant ministry, this church, a ministry that we started 47 years ago because we wanted to give 
our children every chance to be victorious in their relationship with the world, to overcome the world when they were mature people. And so we're setting the sail. We're seeking to determine the direction for them as best we know how. Benjamin Rush was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He's one of our founding fathers, not as famous as Jefferson and Franklin and Washington, but certainly as influential in his day. Benjamin Rush was a doctor. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He was the Surgeon General of the Continental Army. He was called at that time the father of American medicine. He was certainly trusted. He was the treasurer of the Mint of the United States. And he wrote these words. Listen to them. I quote, By renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing away from their moorings upon all moral subjects. The Bible is the only correct map of the human heart that has ever been published. The Bible is the only correct map of the human heart that has ever been published. And boy, about 60-some years ago now, America decided she was going to cut herself loose from her moorings. And we said, you can't read the Bible in the school. You can't offer a prayer in the school. You can't have a chapel service anymore in a school. We're going to make the school secular. We're going to make it value-free. We're going to make it multicultural. One person's truth is just as good as another person's truth. We've been sowing. Now we're reaping. Why do the people in America act like they do? Because they've been taught to think like they do. I conclude with a couple of things. Your children are the most precious heritage you have. And when you get grandchildren, you'll feel the same way about them. I'd do anything for my grandchildren. I'd do for my children now. All eight of them. I love them with all my heart. If it came down to it, I, I would hope I would die for them. They're more valuable than anything I have. And so early on, God laid it upon my heart to establish a school that would reflect the Bible as well as give people a great education. I stood on the parking lot this week and talked to a man who's not a member of the church. He's a Christian. He's a good person. And the man said to me, I told him what I was going to preach on. He said, you tell them the one thing. Coming from a Christian father, I thought because I went to a really good church and I put my kids in Christian school that that would take care of it. You tell them for me that even so, the home still is more influential than any of that. You tell them, don't put your children in the Christian school and bring them to church and think that you don't need to do anything else. That's the downside, I guess, of Christian education. You see, training our children is a three-legged stool. There are no two-legged stools. Have you ever thought about it? If one leg breaks off, the stool falls over, doesn't it? There's a three-legged stool. That's the minimum. 
a home, a school, and a church that all are going in the same direction. And it doesn't guarantee success, but it sure does increase the chances of it, in my opinion. This culture is eating up our children. They are the chaff for the machine of the culture. It's turning them against the faith. 80% of the children in some surveys leave the Christian faith after their first or second year of college. God knows we need a visitation, don't we? 2 Timothy 3.15. Turn there in your Bible. From a child, you have known the Holy Scripture. From a child. And the Scripture is able to make you wise to salvation. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.